and we're starting a new sermon series called Can You See It? You should have gotten a bulletin when you came in that has this kind of fun eye chart on there. We're talking about the kingdom of God, and that's one of these terms in scripture that is just huge and complicated and kind of hard to nail down. And so today is step one of trying to arrive at a common vision of the kingdom of God. Uh, how many of you remember the magic eye posters? Remember those things? They used to sell them like in mall kiosks, and you're supposed to walk up to them, and like if you squinted really hard at them, and like a you know, vein started popping out in your head, then you could see the tiger jumping out at you. You could see whatever was supposed to be in there, right? The kingdom of God is a little bit like magic eye, but not stupid. <laughs> it's not a gimmick. And this is something that everybody actually has a vested interest in, whether we know it or not. Maybe you came here this morning because in 2017, you told yourself, I'm going to be more spiritual. 2017 is the year that I start to really do better at caring for myself spiritually. And if that's where you're at, I'm really glad that you're here. Maybe uh, you're here because you grew up growing to church and it's been a long time. And you're going to try to make this a part of your rhythm, part of your life in 2017. And again, I'm glad you're here. Or maybe this is just what you do on a Sunday. Regardless of where we're coming at, 2017, the spiritual life, one of the leading voices in my own life, and I think in, in all of Christendom, was a man named Dallas Willard. And we're going to be talking a lot about Dallas Willard because he's one of kind of the authorities on the kingdom of God. And he said this, and I'll say this twice because I think it's such a helpful quote. A person is a spiritual person to the degree that his or her life is correctly integrated into and dominated by God's kingdom. A person is a spiritual person to the degree that his or her life is correctly integrated into and dominated by God's spiritual kingdom. So that's all of us, to a degree. If we care about being a spiritual person, if we have some sort of resonance with that topic, then this idea of the kingdom, according to Willard, is sort of the cornerstone of that. Like, this is how you get at the thing that you want. If you follow what Dallas Willard is saying, your pursuit of the goal of a thriving spiritual life, however you would define that, has to have something to do with integrating your life into God's kingdom, into a much bigger story, into a better and broader and more technicolor vision than any of us could ever dream of. This is why it's so much better than a magic eye. It's not just a one-trick pony. It's something, the kingdom is something that, com that is comprehensive and covers all of life, the past, the present, and the future. And that's part of what makes it really hard to describe. <laughs> If you really want to get into this deeply, I would recommend Dallas Willard's book to you called The Divine Conspiracy. It's amazing. It is a tough nut to crack. I've tried starting it four different times, and on my fifth time, I finally got in. Like, I finally think I cracked it a little bit. But today, we're going to talk about the Beatitudes, because the Beatitudes are statements of reality in the kingdom. Now, I've been around the Beatitudes like my whole life, like I grew up around church, like I've studied these. The Beatitudes are these wonderful statements that Jesus makes that are both clear but also really challenging. And they appear at the beginning of kind of his magnum opus, the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we're looking at the very first of the Beatitudes. The very first, blessed are. That's what that statement, Beatitude, means. Blessed are. We'll come back to that over and over again. And today's 
beatitude really is about the kingdom. The word's in there, so we're going to talk about it, but that's going to inform how we look at the rest of the beatitudes over our study these next couple weeks. And so three simple questions for us this morning, really. What is the kingdom? Who lives there? Like, who populates the kingdom? And why does it matter? What is it? Who lives there? Why does it matter? If you uh, would like to turn uh, in your bulletin to the outline, there should be a little bit of an outline in there just to kind of help guide this time. And so that first movement, what is it, is what we're going to tackle first. And then kind of the operating thesis for us this morning, if you're into these kind of things, if you want to write this down, it goes like this. The poor in spirit live in God's kingdom by being dependent on him for all things. The poor in spirit live in God's kingdom by being dependent on him for all things. Anytime we step into the scriptures, it's a really good idea to kind of look around and take stock of where we are, to understand the context. What's happening in the book of Matthew, what it's about, some basic groundwork. So Matthew's gospel was written with an audience in mind. It was written to Jews, to Jewish people in the ancient Near East. And so what I mean by that is, all throughout Matthew's gospel, there are these little tips of the cap to people coming from a Jewish background. One of the ways that Matthew does this is right at the beginning of his gospel, he presents this genealogy, this history of Jesus' family, and he starts that genealogy with Abraham. Abraham was one of the most important figures in the Jewish faith, so that already would have pricked the ears of the people that he was speaking to or writing to. Matthew also quotes the Old Testament a lot. So if you have a Bible, anytime you see that kind of indented uh, sort of different justification for the text, that's usually an Old Testament passage that Matthew's quoting. And as we'll see in this moment, in the text that we have in front of us today, Matthew isn't just going to speak to people from a Jewish background. He's going to speak to everybody. But he's going to introduce something that's one of the key themes all throughout his gospel. And it's a phrase he uses kind of interchangeably. He calls it the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Those two things are kind of one and the same for him. And if you want to, you can look at these two instances with me from early in Matthew's gospel. I'm going to read them briefly for us, but Matthew 3, 2, and then Matthew 4, 17, are where he starts to introduce this topic. And the two speakers that use this are really interesting. Matthew 3, 3, 1 and 2 goes like this. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And you skip forward one page, and again it says, From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The two speakers are John, the herald of the Messiah, and Jesus, who is the Messiah. What these two men are saying has been interpreted in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think the way that you interpret the word repent has a lot to do with how you understand these statements. In the original language of the text, the word repent is the same word in the Greek, it's called metaneo, metaneo. And it's a little bit like where we get the word metamorphosis. And what it means is utter transformation, to undergo a change in frame of mind, a change in feeling, or to be totally reformed. Now, if you're like me, you probably didn't use the word repent this last week. Like, it probably didn't come up. Like, even when you're really mad, we don't usually use the word repent. That's not a common phrase in our culture. But when we see that, and I was trained to think like this, oftentimes we think of simple behavior modification. That's at least a lot of what I I understood growing up in the church that I grew up in. Repent means clean up your act, right? It's what my grandma would say to me when I was being bad. Clean up your act, come on. Stop drinking too much and you'll get into the kingdom. Clean up your language. 
clean up your web browser's search history, and the door to God's desires for you will swing wide. This misses the point of what both Jesus and John were saying entirely. But this is where we're going to get back to the kingdom. It makes sense that we think this way about the word repent. It makes sense that we think about it in terms of our own personal activity. A kingdom is a place where the will of the ruler is expressed. So every one of us, regardless of whether you think about it this way or not, oversees kingdoms, our own personal kingdom. You have a kingdom at work. Your office, the people you work with, there are things that you can say and do there that you can do to exercise your will. It's effective there. If you say to someone who works for you, hey, I need you to do this for me, you are exercising your will within your kingdom. Your home is a place where you exercise your will. That is an aspect of your kingdom. It's the range of your effective will. It's where you can say something and it's probably going to get done. And like we talked about at the very beginning, Dallas Willard said this, our kingdom, our little kingdoms, are designed to thrive, integrated into and under the rule of God's kingdom. So everywhere you and I think we have control, we actually don't. Because the control exists in the much larger reality of God's kingdom. So, connect this back to repentance, to metaneo. If I believe that my kingdom, the range of my effective will, what I can do, what I can say, if that's all that matters to me, if it's all that I can see and experience, then my ability to control my life is really important. My ability to say things and do things and sort of exercise my will and my kingdom, that's a big deal. That's where we get this idea of if you clean up your act, you're in. But the wonderful thing is that's not the gospel. It's not what Jesus came to proclaim. It's not what Matthew's getting after as he targets this at his Jewish audience. He wrote his gospel in such a way to break down the walls of our kingdoms. And to the people that he was writing it to, deeply religious people, people that we would say are morally upright, that are virtuous, he was saying to them, there's more. There's more to what you think your little kingdom is supposed to be about. And that's where we get when we talk about the kingdom of God. So enough teasing, enough, t- enough you know, tarrying. Let's define this thing. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, which the Bible uses somewhat interchangeably, is the range of God's effective will, where what he wants done is done. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will, where what he wants done is done. That comes from Dallas Willard from The Divine Conspiracy, that book that I recommended. Now, a couple of quick observations about that, because that's like, like, what, whoa, where do we even go with that? This is all from Willard. God's kingdom is eternal, right? So you can't put a time stamp on it. It has been around since creation, and it will continue forever. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. Think about that. It cannot be disrupted. It cannot be torn apart. Every other kingdom in the world can be disrupted, but not God's kingdom. It cannot be shaken, and it is totally good. There is nothing I can think of in the world that cannot be shaken and that is totally good, except for God's kingdom. Human beings don't fashion the kingdom, like we don't make it from ground zero, we participate in it, and we can't stop it. We can't interrupt what God wants to do with his kingdom. And finally, the kingdom is always breaking forth, it's always spreading out, it's going further and further into the world that we live in, it's taking over more and more of our little kingdoms, and it goes in the way that Jesus designed it to go. So why does any of this matter? Because like many of us, because many of us like the Jews in the ancient Near East, we live in an okay kingdom. If you want to exercise your will, if you want to buy what you want to buy at the dollar menu, if you're fine with that, 
That's an okay exercising of your will. That's fine. But it will kill you. Dollar menu will kill you. Sorry to tell you that. <laughs> and because the exercising of our will and our kingdoms, it's not enough. Because we don't need to just do what we want to do. We need metaneo. We need transformation. We need to repent. We need to be changed. We need to see things in the vantage point that God desires. And this matters because God's kingdom is available right now. We can step into and participate in God's kingdom in this very moment. And there are ways that we're already doing that in this church right now. And you can step into that. And going back to that Dallas Willard quote from the very beginning, our little kingdoms can be integrated into and dominated by the real kingdom. And we can find real life. We can find real hope and real joy. And the Beatitudes, I believe, are these concrete statements of how life in the kingdom is supposed to look, how we can receive that right now. So let's turn to our first one. Look with me at blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the next step down your outline. And we're going to try to answer the question of who lives in God's kingdom, who populates the kingdom. So we've learned that the kingdom of heaven is the range of God's effective will. If this is a totally new concept for you, by the way, um, join the club. Like, I had never heard of this until, like, maybe college, seminary a little bit. Like, this was a new thing for me, too. And like those of you that are experiencing this for the first time, you may be thinking, like, well, who, who could live that way? Like, who lives there? If you've ever visited a foreign country, you can look around at the landscape, you can look at the buildings, you can eat the food, but how do you really get to know what a country is like? The people. When you sit and you talk to people, when you learn about their culture, it takes that interaction face-to-face to really learn what a place is about. And learning what God's kingdom is about means we've got to learn what the people who live in God's kingdom are about. And here at Bethany, we believe the best way to do that is to study the scriptures. If you want to go to a different church down the road or wherever you go, you, you may hear about the Bible, you may not. But here every Sunday, you're going to hear about the Bible. And you're going to hear about it from me or from another one of our teachers. That's just a priority that we have at Bethany Community Church. So turn with me to our main scripture passage. This is very brief. Matthew 5.3. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The message, which is a a paraphrase of the Bible, puts it this way, and I, I really think this is helpful. The message says, You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. Less of you, more of God and his rule. So who are these people? Who could live this way? I want to offer two thoughts on this from some scholars that I read this week. And both, I think, present two sides of the same coin. One comes from Dale Bruner. And he's a Bible scholar that used to be at Whitworth University. Now he's at Fuller Seminary. And this is kind of the literal way of thinking about the poor in spirit. We're going to try to define who these people are. This is the literal approach to it. Bruno writes this, the word for poor, patochi, which comes from the verb patosa, which means to cower or to cringe. Think about the last time you cowered or cringed. Doesn't happen very much to comfortable Western Americans. The word for the poor means the abject poor, the abysmally impoverished, those completely dependent on others to make it, people on welfare, people who recognize that they are helpless without God's help. Now, most of the congregations I've served were not populated by people who came from this demographic. I've served in wealthy churches, I've served in less wealthy churches, and my guess is that most of us did not come from welfare this morning. And if you did, I'm really glad you're here, because we need you. But most of us woke up in a comfortable bed, 
We had some form of breakfast, possibly. Cup of coffee, most likely. Most of us have health care. Most of us have clean water. When I thought about the desperately poor this week, the abject poor, you know what I thought about? I thought about this heartbreaking report that I read from Aleppo, the city in Syria that has just been torn apart by war. Things have gotten so bad in Aleppo, they don't even have drinking water. So like, that's one of the last things you can have taken away from you, right? The ability to drink clean water. The people in Aleppo are the desperately poor. And that's why we pray for them. That's why we seek ways to be a blessing to them. That's the literal definition of poor in spirit. Utterly poor, impoverished. Now, the way that we might be able to relate to a little bit better comes from a different Bible scholar. I would call this definition personal, but still broad. This comes from Douglas Hare. Blessed, he's kind of rephrasing the blessed are the poor in spirit statement. He's kind of putting his own words on it. Blessed are the affluent who regard themselves as if they were poor, remembering humbly their dependence on God and their subservience to his will. Blessed are the affluent who regard themselves as if they were poor. That's a statement, I think, for people on the east side, for people in America, for people who woke up in warm beds this morning. Now, there's things that both of these groups of people have in common. Both the abject poor and the affluent who remember their poverty, they are both connected in a couple of different ways. Both no longer trust that their earthly kingdoms, the range of their effective will, still works, still gets them what they want, still kind of covers all their bases. In other words, the people of Aleppo have seen enough of the kingdom of Syria. They know they don't need to count on Syria anymore to provide for them. They're done. And somebody's thinking, okay, that's kind of tragic, that's kind of, you know, cynical. It is except in God's kingdom. Because God's kingdom allows us to no longer put our weight down on the things of our earthly kingdoms, and instead the real kingdom is where we put our weight down. So these two groups of people are united by the fact that they no longer trust in earthly kingdoms, earthly powers, earthly persons. Instead, they trust God to provide, to protect, to enable them to flourish, to enable real life, and that they can count on that happening now. They are not waiting on anybody to come and rescue them anymore because the one who has come to rescue them has come fully in Jesus Christ and they are participants in his kingdom. They're not waiting. It's happening right now. And both groups of people get that the Beatitudes are a statement of how life is supposed to be. Life's supposed to work like this. Which is challenging when we try to connect the idea of being poor to any of our own lives. This is where the text kind of hit home for me this week. I'd been studying, you know, I really got into this, and then I took a break, I came home. I think I was doing something as benign as standing in my kitchen making quesadillas for my kids. And all of a sudden it hit me that to be poor in spirit is not something to be avoided. To be poor is not something to run away from or to try to inoculate ourselves from it. It is good to be poor in spirit. I'd never thought of it that way before. And you may be asking yourself, why would it be good to be poor? Isn't poverty something to be avoided? No, not in the kingdom of God. Not in the kingdom of God. I'll share one last quote in this section. This is from Martin Luther. And I'll share this, and then we're going to spend some time on it, because I want this to hit us personally, like it's hit me personally this week. Luther wrote this centuries ago. A person is called spiritually poor, not because they have no money or anything of their own, but because they do not covet it. 
They do not set their comfort or trust upon it as though it were their kingdom of heaven. That is incredible. When I feel spiritually poor or dry, I just want to get away from it. When I feel like I'm spent, like I don't have much to give, my family, my kids, my work, um, I'm a type five on the Enneagram, so I live right here. And what my typical practice is to go, oh, I'll just go think about that for a while, which doesn't solve any of my problems. What I want to do as a result of this text, how my life hopefully is going to be a little different as a result of this text, is instead of going off and thinking about my poverty or avoiding it or moving on to the next thing, I want to stop what I'm doing and recognize it and pray. Pray when I'm at the end of my rope, like the message translation talked about. Write down my prayers, lift up my anxieties to God, and those things won't get me out of being spiritually poor. If you're looking for a pastor who is spiritually perfect, you need to find another church. I think I'm going to try to be spiritually poor because I think that's where we're supposed to live. Now, let's try to make this personal before we move on. I took Luther's quote and I wrote it with a different set of pronouns. And because I know a lot of you, I'm going to grab some names out of the air and insert them into Luther's quote. I'm not picking on anybody, believe me. But I just want you to hear this as a personal word. So if you want to close your eyes and just listen, you're welcome to do that. Dale, you are spiritually poor. Not because you have no money, but because you do not covet it or set your comfort or trust upon it as though it were your own kingdom of heaven. Megan, you are spiritually poor. Not because you have no money, but because you do not covet it or set your comfort or trust upon it as though it were your own kingdom of heaven. Dylan, you are spiritually poor. Not because you have no money, but because you do not covet it or set your comfort or trust upon it as though it were your own kingdom of heaven. Friends, can we make that our personal pursuit? Can we make that the thing that we chase after? Being spiritually poor and stopping ourselves in all the ways that we try to prevent being poor, to embrace the kingdom and recognize, like the title of the sermon suggests, this is the kingdom of the poor that belongs to the poor. And there is a place for each of us in it. So the poor in spirit live in God's kingdom by being dependent on him for all things. We need to talk about how to make that practical. Why does that matter? How do we make that work? I'm going to give you three ideas for that. Refinement, dependency, and blessing. Refinement, dependency, and blessing. This is how we kind of take the kingdom of God and say, all right, how am I going to make this work in my life? So let's start with refinement. By refinement, I don't mean like I have very refined tastes. Does anybody even say things like that anymore? I mean refinement like the process of getting valuable metal out of an ore, right? What's bad, what's not valuable has to pass away. Isaiah 48.10 summarizes this really well. See, this is God talking, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tested you in the furnace of adversity. That is God's way of refining people. I am increasingly convinced that the primary way that I grow in any of the roles that I have as a husband, as a father, as a disciple, pastor, the primary way that I grow, are you ready for this? It's failure. It's when I fail. Early on in our, our parenting journey, Jill and I were uh, at a friend's house and our kids were playing together with this other couple 
and we're standing around talking, and, and those of you that are parents know this, you can be in the middle of a conversation about like poopy diapers, and all of a sudden it becomes philosophical. Like it's kind of fun. Like things just sort of manifest like that. And so I remember saying something to this friend of ours about how I was learning about in parenting I can be kind of harsh, right? I can like say a harsh word to my son. I can kind of come down hard on him. And I had to learn that that not only hurt him, but it hurts me to do that. And so I, half jokingly, I said to this woman, I guess that's how I learn best is through failure, through not getting it right. And she said to me in this wonderful moment, yeah, but I don't like failure. Can I learn some other way? Is there like another route I can take? And she was being really honest. And what that says to me is that being refined through God's process for God's purposes really doesn't usually feel great. It usually doesn't. And parenting is a great laboratory for that. If you don't have kids, your work can be a great laboratory for that. Being involved with your friends can be a great laboratory for that. Why should we want to learn this way? Because it's how the kingdom of heaven works. And here's a big takeaway for me from this study. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor, not to the perfect. Do you hear that? The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor, not to the perfect. The good news of Jesus Christ is that no matter how bad you and I mess up, we get to experience that refinement of God in our lives. This is Romans 8.28. For God uses all things for good for those who love him. We've been called according to his purpose. So the metric then isn't, did I hit the mark? Did I get through this perfectly? The metric is, how am I being refined right now? When something comes up into your life and you're going like, I wish this would end. Like, I could snap my fingers and make this end tomorrow. That sounds wonderful. What if you're being refined? And not everything should be thrown into that category. There's all kinds of caveats we could put on that. But what if what's happening in your life right now that feels like pain, feels like turmoil, what if there's a way for it to be viewed as refinement, as what God wants being teased out from you and brought to where it belongs right in front? In my mind, that's one of the things that Stephen ministry is so valuable about, is you get an outside perspective on your pain, on your background, on your baggage, and someone who loves Jesus can look at you and say, I can see how God's refining this in your life. And that's a powerful thing. Okay, so that's refinement. Let's talk about dependency. One of the really fun things that's happening in our household right now is my son, my four-year-old, starting to learn to be a little bit more independent. And so he and I share the same love, our favorite drink, chocolate milk, and so sometimes I'll hear him, like Jill and I are usually asleep in bed when this happens. He'll walk into the kitchen, he'll grab his little stool, and he'll drag it over to the counter, and he can open the fridge. So I'll hear him open up the fridge, and he'll grab the bottle of chocolate syrup and the, bottle, the jug of milk, and he'll come back over and he'll set it up there on the counter. And I can hear all this, right, in my head. And I'm like, okay, here comes the cup. And he stands up on the counter, and he reaches up as high as he can, he gets the cup down. And by then, one of us is usually leapt out of bed because the milk's about to be poured and that's not going to be good. <laughs> but I'm proud of him, in a way, for trying to be a little bit more independent, for trying to get at something that he loves. Like, that's cool, right? I think this is what dependency, in a way, kind of looks like in the kingdom of God. This, this reminds me so much of a passage in Mark 10. If you want to turn there with me, we'll look at this. Jesus is surrounded, kind of like our church is, by people of all backgrounds and all ages and stages in life, and parents are bringing their kids to Jesus for him to bless them, and his disciples are doing what I often heard people say to me in church growing up, which was, sit up straight, don't touch anything, don't do this, behave yourselves. That always does a lot of good, by the way. 
And then Jesus' voice breaks through the clouds of propriety. Listen to this. This is Mark 10, starting in verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, saw the children, he was indignant with his disciples and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. Why? Because it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. That's a kingdom of God statement. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a professional Christian, as someone with a seminary degree, as the best person on their block, no, as a little child, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, he laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. Jesus blesses children in the midst of what everybody else saw as chaos because he wanted to make a statement about the kingdom where the rule and reign of God, God's effective will is so clear. And children modeled dependence for us because they haven't gotten addicted to any other kingdom. They just want to be with the one who's in charge of the kingdom for all of us. They come to him. They love him. The kids are not convinced of anything else. So in a way, they're, they're the poor in spirit because they haven't bought into the lies of other kingdoms. They know they're going to be taken care of. They know they're going to be loved. And they're beautifully dependent on the one who gives them real life, whose kingdom is forever. So the question for us, kind of just the practical way to think about this and reflect on this is where and when, right? So what time and what location are you and I most avoiding being like little children? Where are we trying to do our best adulting? <laughs> Absent Jesus Christ. Trying to make it work on our own. This week, just and I'm going to try this. Try a real simple exercise. When you feel that stress needle starting to move toward the red, step back and ask, am I depending on God right now? Am I? Simple question, yes or no. And if it's no, back off. Take a deep breath. Do what you need to do. So, refinement dependency, and we'll finish with blessing. God's kingdom is a place of generosity. We're going to see this as we look into the Beatitudes a little more. The poor in spirit, they don't feel that humanly tugged to pay God back. You know that feeling like when someone gives you a really nice gift and you're like, dude, I've got to step it up next year with my Christmas gift. Like, I gave them chocolate. Like, I need to step this up a little bit. That is not how God's kingdom works. We just receive, and then we respond by seeking to be a blessing to others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was someone who deeply understood the kingdom of God. If you don't know him, he was a pastor, he was a theologian during uh, the rise of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. And he went to jail because he was training pastors. He was running an illegal seminary, imagine that, to train pastors to stand up against the Nazis. And so when he was in jail, before he was executed, he spent hours and hours writing letters to his friends, and he would use these letters to continue to think theologically about the kingdom, about the church, And he wrote this, and this is one of these quotes that I will never get tired of reading because I believe it is the core of of how God desires his church to live. Bonhoeffer wrote this in 1944. The church is the church only when it exists for the sake of others. I'll say it again. The church is the church only when it exists for the sake of other people. The church must share in the secular problems of ordinary human life, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell people of every calling what it means to live in Christ, to exist for others. The church is not the kingdom. It is an expression, a place where people point to God's kingdom. 
And when the church exists for the sake of others, it exists in the way that I think God intended it to. And I'll just say this to all of us, but especially those of you who are new. If you want to be involved in a church that seeks to bless others, stick around. Like, we're slowly starting to figure out how God has called us to be a church that blesses the hungry in our community through our partnership with Pantry Packs and Hopelink. And you can find out more about that if you want to come talk to me or one of our leaders. It's an amazing new thing that we're doing this year. At Christmas, we were partnering with the YMCA to help provide food for hungry families. This is part of how we address, as Bonhoeffer put it, a secular problem of ordinary human life without dominating it, simply by helping, to help reveal the kingdom of God, to not make our name great, but to make the name that is above all names the greatest name. So as we talk about the kingdom over the next couple of weeks, just remember these last few things, and I'll invite the band to come join me up here. Remember that the kingdom is something that has arrived in Jesus Christ, and it is still breaking forth. Remember that when we partner with pantry packs, with other ministries, other nonprofits that are doing really good work, we're not just doing it to be nice. We're doing it because we believe that there is a solution, that there is something that's going to happen, that's going to change the world, and that's going to be when Jesus comes and the kingdom is restored when everything is made right. That is going to happen. And that's different than the way that a lot of people interact with things like pantry packs. We know where the solution is. And we're not triumphalist because of it, but we know it and we proclaim it. In a moment, we're going to come to the communion table and I invite anybody, everybody, who has faith in Jesus Christ, even just like a little bit of faith, a mustard seed of faith, to come and be a part of this meal. I'm going to invite the servers to come forward now as we get ready to enjoy this meal together. And it is a glimpse of the kingdom. This is a glimpse of God's kingdom because this is a table hosted by a homeless carpenter who had no money and no stuff. And he hosted this for his friends. He gave it away. What little he had, he gave away. And so this is a table for the poor in spirit. So please join me in prayer as we ask God to set apart this time. Merciful God, you have given us your word preached, and now we want to take on your word, take on your grace through this special meal. All we got up here is juice and some bread and some crackers, and yet we know through the power of the Holy Spirit there is more at work here than just that. Father, set this time apart. Set your people apart to come and receive from this table a table that we will celebrate in the kingdom. Lord, renew our hearts through this time. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. If you've never been a part of communion before, the reason we do this is because Jesus did this. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples, he was with the people he loved, and they shared a meal together. He took bread and he broke it. He offered it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. In the same manner, after supper, as it would have been their tradition in the Jewish culture of the time, they would have shared the Passover cup together, and Jesus offered it to his disciples. And he said something different. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for each of you for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul later reminds us in one of his letters that as often as we eat this bread, as we drink from this cup, we proclaim the life and death and resurrection and the hope of the kingdom until Jesus comes to restore his kingdom. So the way that we do communion here at Bethany is you come forward through these aisles and then you leave on the side aisles. Come forward as you're ready. We have elements in these smaller baskets that are gluten-free, so if you have any allergy concerns, please take something from the smaller basket. 
folks up here will serve you. They'll offer you bread and say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And you can take that bread when you're ready to do so. And they'll offer the cup to you and say, this is Christ's blood shed on your behalf. And you can take the cup back to your seat. And it's our tradition that we share the cup together uh, midway through our next song. So I invite you to come. Come, poor in spirit. Come and receive from the King at his table. Let us worship.